This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That's me. I'm part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm here at Vox Media headquarters in New York City. By the time this episode comes out, Code Media will be over. It's promoting Code Media for many weeks. Now it's done. So make sure to go to recode.net for all our coverage. There's videos, there's podcasts, write-ups of the interviews. It's an amazing event. I can tell you that now, even though I'm talking about it in the future. We'll go read it. I want to say thanks to everyone who came. Okay, that's the post-promotion of the event that happened. Here's the thing that's happening now. I'm talking to Lauren Duca, live in person. Hi. Hi, Lauren. How are you? I'm excellent. I'm delighted to meet you in person. Same. I've been reading about you for a year plus. Hey, that past 15 minutes before I got in here. How do people... No, 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 no. A year ago, I was like, we got to get Lauren Duca on the podcast. And yeah. we missed our window. Um, you are the person who rose to national consciousness for writing a single article mm-hmm. for teenvogue.com. That's true. Everyone knows the article, but just tell us what the the headline of the article is. Donald Trump is gaslighting America. Still true. It is true. a definition of a viral piece of content. Oh, gosh. You know, there's like numbers on it, and I had thought based on the numbers I'd been taught at HuffPost that I had gone viral before, but my joke about this is it's like an orgasm when you know you know. <laughs> and you knew. This was very different. Just the, the It was like a tidal wave. I mean, the, the sheer magnitude and of reactions. It was, I, I still kind of haven't gotten over it. <laughs> it's still kind of going That's on. why we're here. That's why we're yeah. talking about it. Then there was the Tucker Carlson <laughs> then there was Tucker. incident, and then Tucker Carlson kept a, a light alive for you for, for many months. Yeah, he's done follow-up pieces on yeah. my violent tweets. I'm the part of the a violent left turn. So that, that is what I want to talk about. I want to talk about how you rocketed into public consciousness. Huh. Um, a lot of people's lives have been changed by Donald Trump. A lot of people in the media business, it's been a good thing for them. It's obviously there's a whole mm-hmm. threat to democracy and threat to the, yeah. threat to the press. <laughs> uh, for a lot of people in the press, though, their, their sort of career has been made by Donald Trump. I think you are sort of maybe the best example of that. Is that fair? That's nice. <laughs> uh, I think that... It definitely is unnerving to to acknowledge that fact. It's very bizarre. Um, I talked to John Lovett about this when I did Pod Save and uh-huh. like the idea that like suddenly you have this success and this giant platform, but it's uh, commenting on fighting back against this horrible, awful thing. And it's just there's not really ever any joy in it. The Pod Save America guys are a little bit in that boat. I meant this is similarly, yeah. yeah to also, people who have been taken off and into notoriety, rightfully so, but like because of the way they're helping people to make sense of this moment. I want, I I want to talk about all that, and I want to go back and explain how you got there. But just yeah. so we're clear about where what you're doing now, you're writing for Teen Vogue. Yeah, there's a monthly column. No, <laughs> there's a monthly column and some other big projects. Some other big projects are. that I can't talk about. <laughs> oh, we, all right, secret Soon. projects. Tk. <laughs> all right, that's a that's a that's a journalism. <laughs> Shorthand. That's good. All right. I didn't. I'm glad I didn't break an embargo. What were you doing before people learned about you? Yeah. From the gaslighting story. Uh, that's a great question. Um, I <laughs> think back on the before times, which I, you know, I think a lot of people have that experience in a lot of different ways post Trump. But um, I wanted to be kind of a scientist of pop culture. I, you know, would kind of cheekily say I wanted to do like comedic anthropology, just kind of deeply reported soft cultural journalism. You wanted to be, you, you were a journalist. That, uh, the, uh, yeah, were, that's my, was my long-term goal was just doing more of that. You, you know, living was, in New York? Yes. Um, and I was writing really cool pieces. A couple I, years out of school, right? Yeah, I worked for the Huffington Post at first. And I, so for some examples, I had also a column 
uh, called Middlebrow at HuffPost, which was pop culture analysis. And uh, the thing I like to emphasize is that I think that that kind of really paved the way in a very clear uh it, it, it paved the way for me to be writing about politics because I was doing these breakdowns of sociopolitical issues using larger life figures of pop stars. Um, and my characters were Taylor Swift and Nicki Minaj and Kim Kardashian. And, and it was parsing through all of these different iterations of modern feminism and what does empowerment look like and what does exploitation look like. And, and, and you know, these, these giant figures were kind of like taking ownership of the term in a very literal way when I was writing between 2013 and 2015. Can I, can I take one or two steps Let back? me finish my yeah, thought. Yeah. Oh. Which is that? Oh, I feel uh, like Tucker now. Is that no? That now I just think that I'm doing that same thing, but my characters are politicians, and um, it's just working in a different space and making things accessible. Um, and that's kind of the work that I uh, continue to do, just in a traditionally political setting. But it was always political. Waiting. Okay, now. Sure. <laughs> What I wanted to do is get a, just a sense of how you got into writing to begin with. Because uh-huh. um, you're a couple years, you went to Fordham? I did. Or which 2013. 2013. Yeah. So I'm always astonished by people who leave college and go right to New York and are writing and are working. Like it took me a, because for me, it took me a bunch of years to uh-huh. sort of like bumble my way into like feeling like, oh, I think I could go live in New York and see if I can make it happen. And right. how am I going to pay my rent? And it and helps that Fordham is in New York. Since you're already in New York, <laughs> it seemed like a logical yeah. place to go. And writing also seemed like a logical thing to do because that always seemed incredibly intimidating um, yeah. from where I grew up, which is the Midwest, looking at New York. How would, how would one find purchase there? How do you get started? How do you get, yeah. how do you start writing? The flip side, I think, is maybe it's easier than ever to start because people will let you write for free on the internet so for very little money. So yeah. how, how did you how did you crack it? Um, yeah, everything. I think I was just running headfirst towards writing as a thing and then a bunch of stuff happened. So I was writing for the paper at Fordham, literally lowercase the paper. It's like the irreverent alternative newspaper and kind of being a shit starter there. Honestly, I was just writing kind of you know, I was coming into terms with my feminism and and interrogating that through kind of uh, op-eds and doing, you know, very proto-troglodyte version of the kind of stuff I eventually what was, what built did, up what, to doing. What, who did, did you have a, a role model? I want to be like so-and-so. This is the kind of writing I want to replicate. Um, yeah, I. you know, it's funny because I... I liked different writers for different reasons, but I didn't have somebody I wanted to perfectly emulate. I mean, at the time, I was definitely head over heels for David Sedaris. I was a freshman in college. You know, we all been there. And uh, Jessica Valenti was life changing for me. She kind of gave me the definition of feminism reading her work. And I let those are two radically different things. But I awesome. Jessica Valenti's husband works. Oh, hey, hey, Jessica's husband. (laughs) Um, And I like I guess the the way I uh, both of their work was that, you know, Jessica was making concepts accessible, empowering her readers with information. And and then the, the just joy of David's writing, I wanted to uh, have build a voice that kind of had this like righteous ethical purpose to it. So and and so and then you get out of college. You think where where can I publish this stuff? I was publishing it in the paper and uh, people were getting excited about it. And, and I think what made me realize it was good and possibly meant to be was the kind of people that were noticing it. Um, uh, you know, bro finance guys that, you know, my unlikely friends that, you know, just 
were like, wow, like I, I really see X issue differently because of you and Fordham, your voice. Fordham dudes. Yeah, and like guys who maybe wouldn't have listened to me while we were drinking, but like were reading my articles and being moved by them. I'm, I was, it, it felt like the thing. And then there was uh, internships, I guess, kind of that built into other internships. It started with actually Allure. Uh, and I was <laughs> like a delivery person, you know, for a summer. Just That's kind Tom, of the original internship. Yeah. Get someone else food. Tom, well, no, 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 no. I wish I was getting food. Tom Ford one time made a chain mail shirt and I don't know, it must have weighed about 50 pounds. And I was just, the, it was so hot. Um, and you had to, you know, you're trying to dress cute. You're at like a beauty magazine and I would just be drenched. Um, I remember one time my, my, the internship coordinator was like, oh, it's chilly in here. I was like, yeah, do you have any deodorant? Like just, it was hell. And then I guess from that, I was a Worked for the local paper in the Bronx, uh-huh. the Norwood News. So that was that was some actual reporting chops and covering town halls, um, and the Kingsbridge Armory, which remains this empty, hollow economic sin. Um, it could be so much for the people of the Bronx. And like years ago, as a college reporter, was distraught over this. And I've tried to pitch this to so many mainstream publications, and everyone's like, "It's not really, you know, it's not a big enough thing. It's like this this languishing space." So that was Norwood News, and then New York Magazine, which was a great internship. I will say. Hey, people always complain about internships. New York Magazine, they, they, you know, they paid you some, not much, but they paid you by the hour. And uh, I actually learned there. Like, they wanted to teach me how to do things, which was cool. Internships are great if you can <laughs> afford them. Internships are great if you can afford them. So it was paid. So that was excellent. That's how you can afford to do it if they're not free. <laughs> yeah. And then even in, then even still, if financially aside, yeah. what is someone going to do with the fact that there's someone who wants to learn are they going to teach you there? Are they going to send you out for food? Yeah. Are they going to give you an opportunity? They did. That was a very good one. And then um, I was a fellow at HuffPost. It kind of built out of out of that. Fellow is like a next rung up in between intern. It was and basically an intern. They had chosen to call it something else. I think Vox does some of those as well. <laughs> yeah, and then and then we're back to my big thing about the middle brow, <laughs> kind of. I think. So you did not find it difficult to sort of get through New York media. It seemed like you bounced around, but always sort of up. Uh, yeah. No, it definitely um, went well. I mean, I think I, I maybe I'm good at this. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Um, I mean, cause it, it, the gaslighting piece struck people for a bunch of different reasons. Um, and like you've said in the past, that some of them, a lot of them are condescending, like, oh, can't believe a Teen Vogue yeah, as, a, yeah. as a grown-up writing about these grown-up <laughs> things. Um, but it really is a, a fully formed voice. Thank you. Again, it, it takes usually people a long time to sort of get to that. And this is all just sort of self-taught and figuring it out and writing. And uh, It's interesting because I think the that I really appreciate that because I do feel like I've had to kind of refine my views in a really public way this year. So that's been... Hard because it's one thing to know something and it's another thing to um, be putting it out on a platform that at times is dragged by Fox News in a hit piece. I mean, there's there's danger and there there is risk and there are bad faith efforts to take me down. That is a level of stress that's aside from the death and rape threats. So it's crazy. I've had to be really sure about. Uh, everything I say and and my ethics as a journalist and my political views um, and the way those things intersect because I'm definitely um, both an activist and a journalist and what does that mean and that's tricky um, and I've had to do it on a public stage but I'm really proud and now I'm like fireproof I'm unshakable I know exactly where I come down I have rules and logical proofs for how I conduct myself and how I 
do my writing and also what I share on social media. It's um, something I've been really intense um, and has been honed um, on a public stage. But I do think I've always been kind of uh, strong-willed and really rigorous about gathering information and um, make, finding the way to be confident in expressing myself. Um, and I think it partly comes from my parents' uh, voting for Trump, having that Republican background and being told, you know, my progressivism was silly and not something to be taken seriously. So I think I spent a lot of time before I was ever writing in any capacity, really getting the receipts for why I believe what I believe. And that's a lot of what I do now. I think about this idea a lot that, that if you're trying to get into journalism, if you're trying to get into media, it, in some ways it's easier than ever because they're tweet, blog, medium. People will pay you to write. People will pay you not very much money to write. They'll take your stuff for free. So you can, and you can get access to a public stage mm -hmm. really quickly um, in some cases. But then you're on the public stage. Yeah. Uh, and there's a, you know, I, I have a very good idea of what I was doing when I was 23 and 24 and 25 and 26. And I'm glad there was no camera <laughs> or at least nothing digitally attached. Um, and I still fuck up publicly, but I've had a long time to sort of like work out some edges and realize sort of what the boundaries are and what things I can say and can't say. Mm -hmm. and for someone like you to be shot out and, um, and immediately, we can, we can go back to, to how you got to Fox News and all that. Uh, again, it's, it's, it's something. I think most people would really struggle with it. When you wrote the Trump piece, did you know immediately this was a hit? Like, what was the gap between publication and, oh my God? Yeah. Uh, well, it's funny because I have a standing desk because I have back pain. So <laughs> I was like at my standing desk as if it was like a command center, like just like <laughs> just announcing when there would be another, you know, Dan Rather had posted something or whatever. Totally was it bonkers. was it immediate? Like it went out and then boom? What was the gap between it uh, going out and it catching? Where, where did it first pick up? It was I wasn't. I guess a couple of hours. Yeah. So by the afternoon, by the time I, I I went out to dinner that night, and by that time I was like, I have had a viral piece. You know, like it, it was. And it was people spreading it on Twitter, and then it went from there. Or where did it where did it pick up? I'm sure you were watching it right on Chartbeat or something to that effect. Not really. No. no. I, I I now it seems silly that I wasn't. No, I don't really know. I don't know. It was kind of. I the thing is, I expected it to do well, so it was like uh, almost sudden when I realized like. It was doing a different kind of well. It was like this is not just. What the, was the was it was it, was it Dan Rather? What I was, think what Dan was the Rather, indicator? Yeah. Dan Rather reached out. Like, literally, Dan Rather. What is going on? That was overwhelming. I mean, yeah. And are you getting feedback from the Teen Vogue people? Are they? Uh, yeah. I mean, I was. You know, I'm kind of on for the weekend, so I'm the one that would have been giving the feedback. So. You're giving feedback to yourself, saying, yeah. "Great job." <laughs> Lauren, this is Lauren. <laughs> we have a hit. Yeah. <laughs> and then is there a playbook for this? Like, oh, you wrote this thing now. Well, so I think what's very interesting is that then there have been a lot of other things that have happened. So that took off um, and, you know, and then Tucker. But then there have also been uh, smaller things and I think ways that people have found my voice that have given me uh exponential growth even over the course of this year. So, like, it, I kind of find it cool to think of in terms of numbers, which is before I took off, I had 23,000 followers, and then it was, like, 
double immediately after gaslighting, like 45 or something ish. Uh And then after Tucker, it doubled again. So it was, and then was 80 something. So it was like literal exponential growth. And uh, now I have 400,000 just to give you a sense of, of, of how much uh, duel of the fates plays whenever I open my mentions, like just the level of feedback from people who love me and hate me every day has just been mounting and and people will come in you know maybe somebody will hear me on this podcast and decide they love or hate me but there's a lot of other little smaller things none of which have been as big as gaslighting but that have kind of it wasn't just like this thing changed it there's been a building and and I've been having to navigate who I am while people are finding out who I am I want to ask you about Tucker I want to ask you about Twitter <laughs> first I want to hear from an advertiser we'll be right back Today's show is sponsored by Mac Weldon, one of the original Recode Media sponsors. We are happy to have them back. Mac Weldon makes the most comfortable hoodies, sweatpants, underwear, and socks you'll ever wear. I am wearing the socks right now. I pay for them with my own money. They are awesome. They're made of naturally antimicrobial fiber, so I smell great. In addition to being awesomely comfortable right now, they are easy to purchase. Go to MacWeldon.com. You get 20% off your order with the promo code RECODE. That's MacWeldon.com, promo code RECODE. If you buy these things and for some reason you don't like them, but you are going to like them, if for some reason you don't like them, hang on to them. Tell Mac Weldon they will send you your money back. No questions asked. 20% off with the promo code RECODE at MacWeldon.com. That's MacWeldon.com, promo code RECODE. I'm back here with Lauren Duca. Of course you know I'm with Lauren Duca because you listened to the first part of the interview and now we're here. It's not radio. Um, it's fake radio. Um, we were talking about Tucker Carlson. We've mentioned it several times. Again, I think if you've listened to this at this point, you, you know about the Tucker Carlson incident. But in case you haven't, I want to play a clip of Lauren and Tucker. This is, what, a week or so after the first piece comes out? Uh, the piece on the 10th and Tucker's the 23rd. First of all, Fox News calls and says, would you like to go to Tucker Carlson? <laughs> yeah. You say yes immediately or no? Or how do, how do you get there? Uh, the funny thing is Tucker Carlson is now such a giant bloated thing in the public mind, but I like barely knew who he was. Uh-huh. I knew of the John Stewart partisan hack thing. I yeah. deliberately called him a partisan hack as an echo of that. That's what I watched like get pumped up to go on. Um, I thought though, I was hoping it was going to be, uh, it was about Ivanka at the plane nonsense. And I just thought yeah. that was a lot of noise. And I, I was hoping to be able to move past his expectation, which I assumed was me, um, you know, defending her harasser because he was gay or some completely muddled logic of how liberals think or whatever. I don't identify as a liberal, but, you know, this is the this is the context. And then I thought I would we would say, well, what is her power? How can we hold her accountable? Rare, you know, rational discourse on Fox News. Um, and he wasn't prepared. So I think, he, you know, he brings in these lambs to slaughter and he brings in what he sees as easy targets for him to kind of perform this bonkers like William F. Buckley at a frat party character. So you didn't know exactly what his shtick was, but but you knew it was Fox News, so you knew what you were getting yeah. into. Did you have any hesitation about, well, I'm me, and this is Fox News, and obviously they're going to yeah. try to get some effect here. Uh, yeah, I don't think I, I understood how hostile. Yeah. I think, yeah, I don't, I, it didn't, I don't know how to explain how I didn't know that, but I didn't, I was just, I was actually shocked by it. <laughs> I think we have a clip of you being, of Tucker being hostile and you being shocked. Should we, let's go to it. What position that she holds do you disagree with? I disagree with her providing a surrogacy for her father based on an empowerment of women when that is an inherent disconnect. 
between his Wait, campaign so, and so her beliefs. So you agree with her, but because she supported her dad, she I somehow never, I did not say game. I precisely aligned with I'm, her. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to understand what you're saying. You, you're not, what that she believes, Tucker, don't you believe? you're not trying to agree with what I'm saying. You're shouting over me every time I speak. It's, it's incredibly unprofessional. I'm asking you a simple question. You're not. Which is, You're actually being a partisan hack who is just attacking me oh, ad nauseum and not even allowing okay. me to speak. Okay. <laughs> so you didn't know what you're getting into. Then five yeah. minutes into it, you figured out what yeah. you're getting into. You have the partisan hack line. Uh-huh. It's about a 10-minute segment. Yeah. Everyone's which is long, by the long. way. <laughs> it's great because then it's got the split screen of Tucker and he's <laughs> pleased with himself and you're there. Did you know when you got off that's a thing? Oh, yeah. Well, so first you hear from the Pepe's. First the Pepe's come. The, you know, the alt-right. Because they watched it live. Because they did it live. Um, so I was worried at first. Uh, once Mediaite picked up the clip, then... There was a conversation about it in which it's it's actually so amazing if you look up this clip, the way that they're titled, like it's just this beautiful sketch of confirmation bias. And there's ones where they, it's like I had a stroke on national television and then there's others where I'm a feminist hero. Um, and it just depends who made the video. <laughs> so, we, but, so you get out of the studio, do you think I did well? So I know, no, I got out of the studio and I thought I had a stroke. And then, and then once the media, I went up, then I was he- getting the, the hero feedback. So it was, uh, it was very, it was definitely scary for a solid half hour. Actually, my, um, my literary agent saw it at first and she, or like saw reactions to it in the immediate wake of it. And she was like, oh God, what did she do? Like without actually looking at it at first before it was clear, it had clearly entered into the Twitter sphere. It was kind of so you become some. famous for writing something online. Then you become more famous for going on TV mm-hmm. and, and fighting with the Fox News host or defending <laughs> yourself against the Fox News Well, host. I don't know that it's fighting with him. It's funny because I, I had a friend tell me um, that he didn't think I was giving my – he explained to me my own accomplishment, but I respected <laughs> what he said, which was, you know, he was like, you didn't just, like, demolish Tucker. You were able to make a point – that resonated with people in an anti-journalistic, sexist, actively hostile environment. And I was like, I love that interpretation of it. But I didn't come up with it. <laughs> and again, did you have any experience sort of sparring on national TV? Or, or no, did, no. Because again, you really, you look like someone who has done this a lot. No, I hadn't. I had not done it a lot. And also it was really, I was shaking after. I mean, I was so, and so were the people like taking off my mic and stuff. I felt terrible because, you know, as much as Fox News seems like the enemy, these are just people working their jobs. And and they were all so, everyone was very uncomfortable. And I was just trying to, you know, okay, well, thank you. And keeping my head down. And then I got to the door and I was like, okay, well, happy holidays because it's December 23rd. And then I was like, I'm a fox. Merry Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> it was vaguely like breakdown level Bill Murray and Scrooge type of screaming. Yeah, I have the adrenaline going now Merry just thinking Christmas. about it. <laughs> It seems like that, that's the occasion where you go, I need a drink. <laughs> yeah. And you go have something that involves liquor <laughs> and an ice cube. Is there a thought at some point, oh, okay, now I'm on this trajectory. The next step is I go, what's the thing above this or how <sighs> do I extend this? Well, no, no. I just want to write. And people have offered me a lot of weird things and crazy things. And, um, oh, God, I wish I could say, well, some network asked me if I wanted to be um, this isn't recent. People are crazy. If I wanted to be an extra 
in an insane asylum, like in a movie. And they were like, it's a movie about a powerful female journalist. And wouldn't it be fun to like for you to have a walk on bit? And I'm like, in an insane asylum? Like they'll literally make mugs of that in the Breitbart store. Like, are you what? Like, and, and so there's always these weird and there's TV things. And, and I, I don't know. It's just I want to write and I have a kind of storytelling I want to do and a kind of a particular kind of work I want to do. If there becomes an opportunity that that fits for doing that work organically, I will do it. But I, I really it took me a long time to remember that just because I'm young doesn't mean every time somebody in a position of authority calls me in for a meeting, I do not need to take the meeting. And I learned it in this really violent way, which was I was being rushed all over town for people like just being like, you, we, you know, like you, what's happening with you? Like, certainly, you know who we are at X, like legacy publication. It's like, what's happening here? What are you even offering me? What are we talking about? And I think because I'm a young woman, woman, people think that they can just be like, get her in here, see what she's about. And then make me feel like I'm being tested when I'm, you know, sat on the delayed, stupid subway to get here, whatever. Anyway, it's not a big deal. It's cool. But it's also I was confused by it and I was disoriented by it. And one such meeting. I was lost and I couldn't, like, Google Maps was not being my friend. And I went into this uh, building to ask directions. And it was, like, this artsy building with these, like, glass walls. And um, this, like, beautiful, mean woman, like, didn't want to talk to me at all. So I, like, spun to, like, run out of the place. And I went right into the glass door like a bird. Um, And I split open my nose. And the funny thing about when you cut your face is that you bleed a Lot. Yeah. So <laughs> it was fine. Like I, I ended up being fine, but it was oh, so much blood. And and then I still went to the meeting, which is so crazy to me um, in retrospect. And I was like on the street and I just have blood like flowing on my face. And I'm just like, don't realize how bad it is. I'm trying to get someone to tell me where to go. And then I end up, they like give me ice at reception. And I have, I'm holding ice on my nose, which is still bleeding, just like sitting across some important someone at a desk, just like, I need to find my center. Like, <laughs> this is a mess. And by the way, you worked at Condé Nast, right? Uh, this is, you, you are working at Condé Nast. So it's no, not I'm like freelance. you. But you've been exposed to that world, right? Yeah, but I didn't understand. But not this way. Well, I mean, I think when you're young, like when you're at the start of your career, um, you're very much like writing is hard. And there is this sense of it as like a starvation economy. And like, it's very hard to get a gig and and, and work. And I, I, especially coming off of freelancing for a year that was not as easy as it is now. Um, you're used to like being like, I'll, I want anything they'll give me. And it took me a long time to kind of transition out of that, like, take the meeting, take the phone call and, uh, you know, sit back and figure out what I want instead of having t- people tell me what I want. Because I think that that is... Um, it's easy to get swept up in a lot of smoke and mirrors. And I realized, like, I finally had, I had an opportunity to be doing the kind of work I wanted to be doing. I didn't want something flashier instead. It wasn't A to C. And I just want, you know, as long as I can keep writing, that's what's important. I feel honored you took my call. <laughs> I, mean, I emailed you, actually. Well, I love podcasts because, yeah. like, you can you can actually breathe a little. We're breathing. So did you have someone, <laughs> did you go to someone and say, I need, I need, I need an agent, I need a manager, I need someone to guide me through this. I, to, I need someone to take the calls I'm not taking. Well, so gaslighting came out of a book proposal. So I had an agent and I wrote gaslighting in the wake of the election. I took like two days of just like a lot of coffee and a lot of wine. And I wrote this kind of like pop culture analysis of reported pieces on 
what I saw as factors of him coming to be. And then gaslighting was the sample. So then when that took off, there became a lot of options with this book project, which is still something I'm working on, um, but it's not formally announced. Uh, I So that, for me, was and is the primary focus. Um, and I also felt really good about the fact that I found somebody who believed in me and my work before everything took took off. And so you have a professional person, you've got a professional relationship with, and you, and you can sort of route stuff through that person. Yes, and my, I, my lit agent um, was in place before gaslighting, so I really trust her. I feel like she actually has my best interest and knows like what I wanted before She knew you before moment. you were Lauren Duke. <laughs> the before times, yeah. Um, I want to ask you about Twitter. You mentioned a bunch. You talked about how you oh, sort of— Oh, God, like, have I? Well, you, yeah, you said, you know, I, I've watched my Twitter followers increase yeah, sort of yeah. over time, and, and you've talked repeatedly about what a cesspool it can be and, and, and threats. You know, one of the themes for the last couple of years and the coverage I've been paying attention to is, is um, the power of Twitter and, and how unpleasant it can be, mm-hmm. especially for women— um, to be on there, um, how threatening it can be. A lot of people are, have quit Twitter. I've just read a piece by Lindy uh, West yeah. from the Times saying, I've been off Twitter for a year. Mm-hmm. It's been great. Um, it, seems, it's, <laughs> it seems like you are still very actively engaged. I mean, clearly yeah. I emailed you. You said you'd come on, and then you said you were upset because I wasn't following you on Twitter. So I'm following you on Twitter. <laughs> um, sorry to... Sorry to expose that. Uh, it's great. You're a great Twitterer. You're great. You had a great uh, Jerry Seinfeld joke. <laughs> synced up with me. I, I, I copied it down here. I'm convinced that Jerry Seinfeld is the world's most affable sociopath. He totally is. It's from Coffee with Cars, He's right? So, yeah. It's eerie almost. So Twitter is, I'm obsessed with Twitter. Uh, I definitely need to be careful with how I expose myself to a lot of uh just frankly unnatural nastiness. You're a woman on Twitter. You're engaged in politics on Twitter. Yeah. You've gone on Fox News. It's all these things that are going to incent the creepiest, most sort of awful people to sort of hover around you and, and harass you on Twitter. Yeah, but I guess I want to emphasize too that like I do um, – Twitter is a huge tool in my career and it got me a lot of work. It got me – the initial gig at Teen Folk came from Phil Picardi DMing me on Twitter. Uh, and now I – independently have my own channel that doesn't rely on a network. So I can be bolder and take risks and say things, and I don't have to worry if I piss off um, some ass-covering outlet because I I am working for myself, and I have a following that's sizable enough that I can will be able to continue to do the work in some capacity, which is really, really important. So you just said for Lindy West, good luck being on not being on Twitter. For you, like you think you have to be on Twitter. It's a it's it's an essential component of your work. I think that Lindy West has been on the front lines eating shit from ugly, awful people for years, and I respect her right to take a break, but I could never imagine getting off of it. And I just think that the thing that pisses people off about me so much a lot of times is just that I'm speaking out at all. So I'm definitely not going to stop. What are your What are your survival tips and tricks well, and gambits? I, ha- I have a dog and I listen to Donna Summer and just cuddle her in the fetal position. No, I mean, there's times when honestly it is awful. And I think that it's something that is like science doesn't fully understand. We haven't been humans online for that long. And the way this this stuff affects us, even though the person behind the screen is going through this act of dehumanization, like of, of separating you from who you are to be able to say these impossibly awful things, you don't have that same 
vent up and so you actually feel that act. And so I think that that has been the most disorienting thing is that almost in both directions, like the way people weigh in on what I say and what I do in from thinking of me as like an entity is, is really, really disorienting. Um, and uh, it's just something that I don't have. There's not somebody who can like tell you like, here's what it's like when you're disembodied from your true self. <laughs> you know, it's a whole for public consumption. <laughs> and, and without an apparatus, right? Because you know? there's been famous people in the past, but usually, right? It's they're a movie star or they're something, and there's they have teams mm-hmm. and that's a, a thing that sort of put them out there. Also, people You're hate solo. them less. My mom actually doesn't understand social media at all, but she shook me to my core with this comment where she said she saw Ed Sheeran on the Today Show or something, and she was said, you know, he said he gets so much crap on social media and he can't take it. And she said, Lauren, I thought of you and thought, he doesn't even have any political opinions. And I was just absolutely floored by that because, yeah, mom. <laughs> yeah, and he's a dude. And, and, he's, a, and he's got a label and a manager right. and he's got a lot of buffer Protection. there, right? Yes. You're yeah. out there. Right, and he's making money. I'm looking so around at your nice. imaginary team. You were here solo. <laughs> Thanks, Gretchen. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was struck. I was, I was I was going through your archives. Um, you gave the commencement speech at uh, Simon's Rock. Yeah. Um, which I had to look up, but Bard. Yeah. Right? Um, and you've got an astonishing thing in there that you say, it's been four years now, this is last year, and I've hurdled over every item in my five-year plan. Yeah. That's a sort of an astonishing thing to be able to say. Yeah, yeah. Four years out of college. Um, I had no idea it was ever going to be like this. So, Yeah. I don't know. Um, it's cool. <laughs> Have you thought through the next five years? Um, <laughs> do you think we have five years? <laughs> yeah. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a relentless optimist. Um, yeah, I think it's going to work out. Yeah. I think that no, no, I don't know. <laughs> Short answer. Okay. You have more news to tell us about, but not on this podcast. So we will follow your Twitter account. Okay. Instagram, Snap, Never Instagram. Telegram, no. No. I just You like words. Yeah, no. My dog's picture. really cute, you know. I feel like it would be just a couple of days before she was drinking green tea, shitting all over the place. <laughs> I want to leave this interview on that note because <laughs> okay. there's nothing better than that. <laughs> Lauren Duca, you're awesome. Thank you for coming on my podcast. <laughs> Thanks for hanging out. Thanks to you guys for listening. Um we ask for something from you because it's a free podcast. We ask that you tell someone else about this podcast. You could tweet about it like Lauren will do. Probably. You could <laughs> post about it on Facebook, Instagram. I don't care. Um, you can email me and tell you tell me you like it. I love that, but it's better if you tell someone else. Thanks to our sponsors. Thanks to Cadence 13 and Vox Media who bring those sponsors to you so you can listen to Recode Media for free. Thanks to Joel Robbie who edited this show. Thanks to my producers, Golda Arthur and Eric Johnson. Thanks to you and thanks to Lauren Duca. Again, we will see you next week. Hey, I got a question for you. Do you like podcasts? Of course you do. You're listening to this podcast. The Deep End by Vox Media is taking over the Belmont for a three-day event at South by Southwest. It's March 9th through March 11th, featuring live podcasts, including me, the host of Recode Media. Kara Swisher is going to do Recode Decode there. The Verge will do Verge's Vergecast there. You get the idea. It's going to be great. It's going to be free. To get a ticket, go to voxmedia.com backslash SXSW-2018. You can also go to recode.net and go to events. You should figure out an easier way to find that same information. Um, it's going to be awesome. It's me, and it's Austin, and it's March. It's a great time. I will see you there.